what if you are able to access emotional, physical, and even spiritual healing for free? What if there was a way to truly put yourself in sync with the very rhythms and the vibrations of the earth itself? And what if I told you that there are predictable cycles in your life that have been happening this whole time? Cycles you've never noticed. That's what we're going to talk about today with Dr. Eski Britton. Thanks for listening. It's Osha here. About to get into the show with Eski. She's amazing. You might hear an ad or two here. If you do, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on. If you don't, you're going to hear Eski say something awesome. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I really believe that a lot of what's happening is in the environment around us is mirroring our society as a whole. And, you know, the health of the ocean is completely linked to our health and well-being. They're really interdependent. We can't be well in the sick sea. And I, I kind of feel there's a, there's a huge opportunity here because you could tackle these two huge problems that are completely interrelated, which is our own health individually and as a society, and in particular around our mental health and in the health of the planet. <laughs> Either working together in, in communities and groups to, to heal a particular environment or water body, but also recognizing how that's going to benefit us, or then working with our with our own health and well-being, like building and restoring those relationships so that we can better collaborate together to take action on issues we care about. That is author, surfer, and scientist, Dr. Eski Britton. And this is Better Than Yesterday. G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is a show that helps you make today better than yesterday. It's what it says on the box. We've been doing this since 2013. I'm here three times a week, Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest, and Friday I'm here with you. And that's it. We're just here to help you make today better than yesterday. Something you hear on the show today will change your day. That's what we do every single episode, and there's hundreds to choose from. I hope you enjoy the back catalogue. Thanks for being a part of the show. Send Osha email at gmail.com is where I am. If you want to ever talk to me, you can also find me on Instagram. Big thanks to everybody that put up a review and rated the show where you could this week. It always helps us when you subscribe and follow where you can. Thank you so, so much. Dr. Eski Britton is on the show today. She's incredible. She and I met in 2014. She's been on the show before telling uh, more of her story about how 
She went to Iran and taught women and girls from tribal villages how to surf and spread feminine empowerment in those communities through surfing. An amazing story. She has an incredible story. She's Irish. She's from Gunnedal in uh, Ireland. She's an incredible human being. I adore her. She's an artist. She's an author. And she's a marine biologist. She got taught to surf at the age of four. She's from surfing royalty, all right? Her, her family is absolutely surfing royalty. Her father was one of the pioneer surfers in, in Ireland. And she's a, a writer, an artist, a, a filmmaker, a coach. She's a marine social scientist and has a PhD in environment and society. She really, her work is the intersection of where the quality of the environment impacts the quality of society. She's amazing an amazing human being. There's so much to talk about with her. She's an incredible communicator. She's got a brand new book. It's called Saltwater in the Blood, and it's freaking amazing. I really hope you get stuck into it because overarching in the book, she talks about the connection of water and healing, and it's really, really something. And and I guess the way she's framing it, the way she's going about her work is we we all hear, oh, we need the ocean to live, but we really fucking need the ocean to live. We need the ocean to live weather-wise, food-wise. We're lucky the ocean's around because the ocean's been absorbing a lot of the heat we've been throwing at the atmosphere, but also a lot of the carbon. And if the ocean goes, we go. So Eski likes to talk in the way, the way I love about it. She talks about the healing effects and how important the ocean is and connecting with the ocean and then therefore seeing the importance of the ocean and why we need to protect it. She's an amazing human being. Saltwater in the Blood is uh, her latest book, She's also written a book called 50 Things to Do by the Sea. You can check out the film she made. It's on Vimeo. It's called A Lunar Cycle, and it's uh, a pretty extraordinary piece of work. It's only five minutes long, but it'll proper blow your mind. It'll give you an idea of who Eastkey Britain is. She's an amazing human being. I'm so grateful that she came on the show. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Eastkey Britain. Eski, it's it's so so wonderful to see you, Eski. Where in the world are you? I'm at home on the west coast of Ireland. Um, yeah, right next to the beach, actually, where I grew up and learned to surf. So wow. definitely back and getting rooted. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's so great to see you again. And honestly, I I adored. I adored reading this. I've got a East copy of EC's book, um, latest book, Saltwater in the Blood, and I, I adored reading. I know a lot of the story, but it was so nice to, to, to read it. And you have a way of, of writing that is fantastic. And so just thank you for taking the time, <laughs> taking the time to do it. <laughs> how, how are you? Like, goodness, how long have we known each other now? Well, I, we we did this. I think we did the think 16, 17, training 18, back 19, in twenty fourteen. So seven years. Yeah. Known you seven years. Um, wow. I'm so grateful for that because you opened my eyes to a lot of things. Were you a doctor when I met you? I think you were. Yeah. You yeah. Were. I feel like this podcast is like my every you know three to four years as I transition as a human, <laughs> I have checked in with Osher. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm I'm bloody glad. Have you been in the ocean today, Yeski? Well, not yet. It's only just getting bright. We're you know heading into winter, and it's definitely like 
hibernation mode when you lose the daylight but I actually really like it because you can kind of it just feels more natural getting up with the sunrise and the moon still setting and at a certain point in the evening that's it the light's gone and you just have to chill out by the fire so <laughs> it's not the worst though we're only just starting into our winter so we'll see ask me at the other end of it <laughs> I remember you telling me about going surfing with your dad up in Newfoundland or something like that and yeah. in water that is below zero, but salt water doesn't freeze at zero, but you said it's kind of slushy. Yeah, it's a bit like surfing in molasses because the density, uh, water gets more dense, obviously, as it cools. But uh, so, I mean, the plus side is that you're more buoyant, so you don't get held down when you wipe out for as long, which is a good thing because your brain freezes. <laughs> You astonish me when he's telling me those stories, and it's astonishing to think that, you know, a dark f frozen morning in West Island in the, you know, the kind of hardcore closing scene of, you know, the new Star Wars, you know, frightening cliff faces, <laughs> and then there's you paddling out. <laughs> yeah. I love it, man. <laughs> I love it. What is that? I mean, we've talked about this before, but when you get in the ocean, is it is it different now? Is it a deeper experience for you now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really evolved throughout my life. And it, it is so many different things. And it depends kind of, I suppose, where I'm at as a human as well. But starting out, it's definitely growing up and like the ocean was very much my playground and, and still is. So that, that stayed constant. <laughs> and then you're going to move in through those competitive years, having that different kind of drive and then traveling with it. So the kind of more exploration phase of it as a surfing as a vehicle to kind of experience new places and people and cultures and then into the I suppose the big wave arena of really kind of seeing how far to the edge of yeah my comfort zone let's say can I go <laughs> and then yeah more recently it's really shifted both in terms of my work of looking at the ocean as a place much more as a place of, of healing of just to be completely myself of feeling that immediate like I know now I, I feel like I need it just to to reset or to feel like I'm, I'm kind of back in my skin again if that makes sense. I'm sure many people would uh, relate to that I, I certainly remember when I was living right next to the beach in my late 20s I, I just didn't feel right unless I'd gone in the water that day and if a couple of days had gone by it wasn't right I, I think I find that differently now I can't really do it every day anymore, but yeah, I, I know I know exactly what you're saying. You did mention something just before, which tagged me back to your book. You talked about and that it's now coming into winter where you are in the world, and the sun's coming up later. That you're watching the moon set, and then and you talked about you've got no choice but to kind of wind down towards the end of the day as the days get shorter, and that you know, since I guess the invention of incandescent light, humans have been at odds with the natural cycles that we evolved to play with, right? And you touch on that quite a number of times in your book, this concept of of cycles and how can we know when we're out of out of sync, you know, whether it be with the cycles of the weather or the cycles of the moon and the sun or the cycles of our own body, yeah, for I think for me, it begins with kind of noticing. They're just these these patterns that actually we're we're kind of moving with and that are moving through us. And if we talk about cycles, you know, from a you know our human history or evolution, so much of our 
ancestry and, and lives were spent really in sync with the, the seasons and the moon and the sun really determining a lot of what we what we could do and when we could do it. And so that kind of set the timing and the rhythm and our, our schedule, so to speak, rather than our, you know, our phones now. <laughs> so but this is only relatively recent, you know, this kind of confinement and, and more of an indoor living um, in more of a, of a digital space. And it's it's strange with the last couple of years too, there's been this huge rise and obviously more screen time with communicating virtually with so many people, which has its benefits as well. And there's been this sort of almost equal and opposite pull of so many people being drawn to go outside or if not having that access to nature, really missing it. So this kind of new valuing of, hang on a minute, we're part of this very much a small part of this bigger system and then I think as a surfer you know it's it's almost a more like natural way to observe cycles anyway with you know you're always trying to determine a surf session around the tides or even a lot of like sea swimmers I speak to now a lot of them are more interested in the high tides and for some of the surf breaks around here they're better on the low tides and so you have that awareness and then it's just noticing like I suppose you know whether you're attuned to it or not if you know what phase the moon is in or if you've been noticing what's growing or you know what what are these other species doing because they're still following these natural cycles so that's kind of one way to sort of just to check in and see ah (laughs) hey what what's going on around me today you know in the living world there's got to be some sort of work done in the space of you know if you find yourself just in your tv in your computer in your phone in your car at work like never really checking out of that i get out of bed at six i go out of bed at 11 there's got to be some work of of the benefits of getting tuned back into those cycles yeah, massively. I mean, for so many reasons, in particular for our health, you know, the, the biggie one, you know, that comes to mind is obviously our, you know, our sleep cycle. So these kind of biorhythms, they've evolved, you know, in relationship with, in particular with what the sun is doing and also the, also the moon. So that they're the sort of like the big bodies that have the most kind of force on on earth and then all living things on earth are responding to that as well and i just find it fascinating even to go back to like the tidal lunar cycles as humans that were we're bodies of water too right so we're you know 60 to 70 percent salt water give or take and that the moon exerts a force on all water on earth even like you know the water in my teacup right now we just can't really see it (laughs) with our human eyes so of course it's having an an effect on us too and you see that with many other species and how their behavior shifts around full moon and new moon and and so it still has an effect on us even if we're not conscious of it and then we kind of disrupt these natural cycles when we try to enforce this artificial and a very hyperproductive notion of how we must work and yeah and of course it's in it's very difficult to just step out of society and go no I'm just moving with the sun now (laughs) gonna rise with the light and go to bed when it gets dark but I think it's just much more important to be aware maybe of that disconnect and how you might bring a little bit of it back in to how we design how we live and work what might that look like? Say if someone wanted to bring a few more of these natural cycles into their, you know, let's say, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a mom, you've got, you know, two kids, you're working two days a week or three days a week and they're listening to this going, yeah, who's got the fucking time for that, mate? Come on. I'm packing lunches and doing laundry. <laughs> say, you know, someone who's kind of a bit snowed under by it all, you know, how might they be able to start to reconnect with some of these cycles in modern life? Yeah, 
I mean, the last thing you want to do is sort of add in a, a whole other feel the pressure of like you have to change your entire lifestyle or there's more that you have to do. But I find for me, it's been a real guiding force, this more cyclical way of living. And it, it, I was already doing it to a certain extent as a surfer, just that awareness again mm. of the tides and the moon and obviously the seasons and, and then tracking and following, you know, these swell patterns. And it's something that I explored. I wanted to explore what effect did that have on me and how I surfed and how I showed up in the ocean in that short film, A Lunar Cycle, I made a few years ago. And the book evolved much more out of that. And then I wanted to look at that from what that's like within a female body and that more feminine perspective. And so then I started to become much more aware of my own inner cycle. So having a menstrual cycle, which was something I never really paid much attention to until relatively recently, which is crazy because it has such an influence on me and on all of us. But getting to grips with that and paying more attention, I suppose, to those, my own inner rhythm. So following... I mean, it's great because we've got this like inbuilt map in particular then as, as women to follow. And for me, it was remarkable just to see how that mirrored the ebb and flow of tides, the, the wax and waning of the moon, and very much like felt like I had my own kind of inner seasons as I, as I moved through uh, my own cycle. And that, I learned that by just, I suppose, noticing and, and mapping and tracking what my energy was doing, how I was feeling you know, on, on each day as I moved through it. And then paying attention to to what was going on in the world around me. And so that really helped me manage my kind of energy and tap into when I felt more creative, when I felt, no, I really need to like rest or be be alone. And of course, that can be difficult to sort of integrate into your life. But um, I did training with an amazing group of women called the Red School. Um, they're based in the UK, Alexandra Pope and Shani Hugo-Werlitzer, but they do an amazing job at at sort of helping (laughs) guide people on this path. But they've got this 1% rule. So kind of, okay, what is the 1% of your kind of ideal of of what you would love for yourself? And then just do that 1%. So it kind of became like a more radical form of self-care to begin with. Thank you so much for giving us such a just generous insight (laughs) because you know I'll I'll never have a menstrual cycle. I'll never know what it feels like. I've lived with women that have, and I've observed it and, and been around it, um, but I'll never know what it feels like. And the way you describe it, like a season in your own body is astounding. But you mentioned that you never really paid much attention. You talk about in the book, you write about, uh, in your competitive years that you were mm. going to this like really intense, uh, final, I can't quite recall or something like that. And boom, your period started that day. And it was like, well, don't mention it just get in the water and go and do the most heavy, intense, athletic, uh, you know, feat you've ever done and win. <laughs> like the, the people I've lived with have gone through their periods like fucking day one. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about the early part of your, that, your early part of your experience, not when you're now, when you're so attuned to it, but then when you were just kind of like almost ignoring that this was even happening in your body. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's the response actually to the book has been amazing because I think for a lot of men, they've 
being really surprised by that, you know, that part of it and that yeah. insight into it, but also just so appreciative. I mean, I get the meme of the hook is like surfing and big waves and, you know, and, and then they start reading and like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but really the reason why that came up, because the story, the book is very much about this, what is a very intimate relationship with the ocean that I've had my whole life and then how that's evolved and kind of using surfing as this metaphor for life, let's say. But I realize a lot of what I've learned about who I am, especially my relationship with my body, has come through this contact with the ocean. And it's been really profound. And I, for me, I think that's one of the most important things, especially for women and girls, is around that kind of body literacy and body confidence. And then when I was competing in surfing at the time, too, it was just, it was like... I was training as an athlete. I was very much connected to my physical body in so many ways, but it was very much like body as machine, body as tool. What can, you know, how productive can I make my body? And so it was a very sort of masculine approach, kind of at odds with a lot of what surfing really is when, when you have those moments of flow, uh, which we can kind of get into as well. So it was being trained in a way to sort of suppress my own rhythms in my body and in a way unfortunately then not tap into the advantage that can actually give women and girls of like knowing when we hit our peak energy and and it's not that even you know if I'm on my period and I'm surfing that I, I surf worse it's that I surf different I can tap into this that more sort of intuitive instinctual nature and often enter those moments of flow when I'm riding a wave so much more easily because I'm a lot less in my head and feel much more connected to everything around me so none of that I knew <laughs> and instead I was just you know pushing and pushing and pushing my body onwards and and then yeah it was seen as a weakness so you definitely didn't talk about that at all in that sporting world when I was growing up it just wasn't something that was that was done when did that start to change for you um, only relatively recently, I suppose when I, you know, my late, late twenties, there was a shift for me. Yeah. Sort of my, my mid to late twenties, I kind of, I stopped taking the pill, which of course I, I'd taken the pill primarily actually, you know, a lot of teenage girls probably end up on it for like your know, acne or skin conditions. And then also if you're doing sport, you're kind of encouraged to take it so that you can regulate and control or basically completely suppress your menstrual cycle which is your your fertility and a key aspect of your of your health but yeah it wasn't until then probably heading into my into my 30s not that not so long ago at all and the shift for me I think it began actually with with making a lunar cycle that short film with Finisterre and they kind of gave me free reign to be really creative and explore I wanted to explore that what was I suppose the experience of surfing in the sea that I felt was missing from a lot of those surfing edits when, you know, I went, was going to surf film festivals and almost, you know, all the films in front of or behind the camera were, you know, it was through a male gaze of men surfing waves. And it, you know, it was a lot of what I call wave porn. So all the glory moments. <laughs> and I felt like it just wasn't, didn't fit my experience of, of surfing in the sea. And so I wanted to unpack that a little bit. And, and then a lunar cycle became that exploration of just all those moments in between even the way of writing and what that's like and what's happening in terms of that connection with the ocean and your body and the breath and cycles. I don't have an inbuilt biological connection to another planet orbiting my planet. You do. <laughs> the other the other women who are in my house do. I'm kind of, I'm not going to say I'm jealous, but I think that's pretty fucking cool that you have that as 
humans evolved, that one of the, you know, versions of the human that shows up has this kind of inbuilt clock that syncs up or is, is related to this other chunk of rock that orbits us. That's pretty sick as far as I'm concerned. That's awesome. Yeah. And actually when through again, maybe the medium of surfing and surfing, you know, cold, dark, heavy water in Ireland, the response to a lunar cycle was really interesting because I actually probably got more response again from, from guys watching it. And it was, yeah, it was interesting then to hear them reflect on actually, I do feel affected by, well, of course you do, um, the, the living world around me. And I do have the, there's this thing with the moon. I know on a, on a full moon, um, I feel a certain way or on a new moon is when I, I need to, you know, actually kind of mind myself a bit more or, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. So I do, I do think it affects us all, but yeah, we've definitely got a, you know, <laughs> super duper radar. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Were you able to get into the ocean during lockdown there in Ireland? Yeah, I was, which was a total lifesaver for me because I, you know, after three days of not having contact with water, I definitely start to get withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> and after a week, I don't even want to be around myself. So we're really lucky here that the, we have the ocean on our doorstep, put it that way. There's people, though, who live very near you and people in, who live near me that just can't do that, can't get to the ocean every couple of days. What What do you say to people who don't have access to this gigantic lungs of the earth that surrounds every bit of land we live on? How, how can they feel a similar effect to what it is you're talking about? Yeah, it's, it's so challenging. And I actually did a, a lot of work over this last year or so, you know, virtually because I couldn't have, you know, workshops with people. And for so many people, that was the case. The water is their medicine and they didn't have access to it. And it was really heartbreaking. So then we try to find ways, I suppose, if you, you know, follow the concept of how we're bodies of water, if we are ocean, um, you know, if we, we first evolve from water, we're, we're salt water is in our blood, quite literally. And that every second breath we take comes from the ocean. Then, we just worked on ways through through breathwork and visualization to actually tap back into that. And I I kind of revisited tools that I talk about in the book as well that I use to train for big wave surfing, you know, that kind of psychologically using visualization and neuroimaging off a big day at Mullochmore or a certain wave that maybe didn't break very often. So I could almost like prime my body and mind to be ready when it when it came. But then I realized actually that's a really powerful way for people to actually reconnect with their favorite water body or ocean wherever they are and so we started to to do that kind of work through visualization with people like revisiting these water memories and the more you do that it was it's quite remarkable because the brain believes the body is actually having the experience the more you practice it and it's so accessible like literally anyone anywhere can do it so it's you know it's not a total cure or fix but it's it was really quite powerful and moving that people realize oh this is I am already always connected and this is one way I can kind of just access that and remind myself I'm not separate wherever I am on earth to to water or the ocean or the rest of the living world. So the idea of using your breathing to kind of downregulate your emotional state and then trying to like visualize as, as, as clearly as you can, a, I'm guessing pleasurable experience in your favorite body of water. And I'm imagining it's like feeling what it feels like on your skin. What is the angle of the light? Can you taste the salt on your tongue? All that sort of thing. 
Yeah, so it's really tapping into those those senses, that multi-sensory experience. And, and then even doing things like sharing recordings, because we kind of respond in terms of our memory responds in different ways, depending on how the senses are triggered. So sound is really powerful. You know, no surprise that ocean sounds are kind of the number one go-to when it comes to meditation tracks and mm-hmm. uh, music to help help people sleep. So that, that's been really, really lovely. Or, you know, people do get to get to their water like to record it and and then to have that with them you know on their phone to play again when they're maybe stuck inside or in the office (laughs) yeah and of course as you rightly said it's with water memories they're not always positive you know they leave a really powerful imprint on us and that can also Mm -hmm. equally be profoundly intense negative traumatizing to the point where you just you have this fear that's quite hard to move through there's a a thing that I particularly love about the ocean, and uh, I don't know if we really talked about this much, when I first got sober, they said, look, you just got to go for a higher power. You just got to go for, you know, what's your higher power? I'm like, well, it's not any kind of God, mate, sorry. And he's like, okay, it's just got to be something bigger than you. And at first it was the ocean wow. because I have been cradled by it. I've been floated and felt enormous joy by it and I have been humbled by it I've been almost killed by it and it really struck me as like I I have to be humble in the face of this thing it can serve me really well but I have to be it can kill me just as much as it can have I can have the best day of my life when I'm out out there I mean there's a great reverence when you write about the sea and a great reverence when you write about the power that you get out of it. But do you always kind of have that? I mean, you're a big wave surfer, clearly. Being present to the idea that this is the best day of my life, but my life could be over in a blink. Do you hold those two things in your mind at the same time when you're out there? Oh, such a good question, because the part of the pull is just what you're describing, is that profound sense of aliveness that comes because you're immersed in something so much bigger than yourself that you absolutely can't control (laughs) the ocean, which, of course, the aliveness also comes from that edge of being very close to being in this kind of unnatural realm for most humans who can't survive very long under the water. (laughs) And you've, yeah, you've really crossed us at this sort of boundary of, of we've, you know, evolved to be on land. And then you're actually, no, I'm going back, <laughs> go back into the water. And so you are, there is this sort of flirtation with this other realm and you're, you know, you're in this very real edge of, I suppose, that, that life death experience, which, which is totally where the aliveness comes from. And also that humility, which then leads to that sense of like awe and wonder that, are such powerful, for me, such powerful emotions and motivators and sources of inspiration in my life. I always really lament that if only like Twitter and social media had algorithms that drove us to experience more <laughs> awe and wonder. But could you imagine what the world would be like? <laughs> A very, very different place, Iski. <laughs> A very different place. And like I would, I would put it to you that I would be more willing to actively engage in something that filled me with awe and wonder than filled me with anger and fear. Right? Yeah. I think so. But I guess awe and, awe and wonder are slightly more difficult things to manufacture in the <laughs> blink of an eye. Fear, because that's how we evolved, yeah. fear is a very easy thing to manufacture in the blink of an eye. It's a very low barrier, barrier to entry. But you're right. You Look, you launch the platform, we'll go. <laughs> we'll 
co-found it right here. Copyright East Gibbet in 2021. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. You do talk about in the book expressing yourself with zero censorship mm. out in the ocean. How would you describe what that well, that means I'm guessing you don't mean just sitting there in, in the waters shouting fuck a lot. I'm guessing you're, you know. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> which, which is interesting. So maybe go back a little bit because I do feel like a lot of the like, time there are certainly moments in surfing and then in competitive surfing where it's you are like moderating how you express yourself because you're trying to conform to a certain set of, you know, rules and criteria based on your like surfing performance but like s- stripping that away and going back to sort of the essence of it which is how it makes you feel that feeling of freedom connection your oneness with something like a wave uh, which is kind of mind-blowing and also then that kind of immersion so I write a lot also about just getting in the water going for a swim or just being immersed in it I find that in particular because if you take the surfboard out of the mix for a moment it takes away that performative aspect so it even allows greater freedom to just be who you are and, and feel all of that and I think the water is a great place to feel all of who you are because especially here when in Ireland when it's cold <laughs> it really brings you back into the present moment and you can't help but feel all of your body being like stimulated all at once it's like yeah like a fire inside so those are the reasons why I think I, I, I talk about how that helps this us let go that kind of self-censoring because we've in water, in the ocean, it's a place where I really experienced that freedom from from judgment. And I mean, of course, then, of course, there's loads of judgment when you're surfing and how are you surfing? And I don't mean that, but I mean, like, literally just that experience you have with being in the water yourself. The uh, idea of the ocean being very, very big, much bigger than you or I is at once an incredibly wonderful thing, but you do you do talk about this, and I, uh, I think it's important we discuss it. It's so big and so complicated and so important. It's, it's almost you can't conceive of it it's that big. And because you can't conceive of it, you – and you write about this so brilliantly in that because you can't conceive of it and how much trouble it's in, it's almost too hard to think about or consider – how much trouble it's in because you can't actually wrap your head around it. It's like when I was a little kid, someone once told me, no, no, the universe is infinite. And I think my brain broke at the age of about four trying to imagine the edge (laughs) of it and then realizing there isn't one. Like my brain can't comprehend that. I know it's, that's what it is, but there isn't one. Like I can't actually conceive of how big the ocean is. And because of that, it's very difficult to have a conversation about how much trouble the ocean is in. And you talk about ocean literacy. And I'm wondering if you might be able to you know, talk a little to us about how we might be able to improve our ocean literacy. Yeah, ocean literacy isn't, I mean, there's maybe some problems with the language around like the literacy part and people think, oh, this is an academic thing. And of course, o- ocean literacy, the ability to read and understand the ocean, our influence on it and its influence on us, which is essentially what ocean literacy is, has been, you know, a, a fundamental part of probably what many of our ancestors once believed and is a cornerstone of indigenous cultures the world over who are very much that where that's that principle is still very much alive and so now we're trying to bring it into more a more modern society and I know in, in Europe and in America there's a big push around it bringing it into schools around so what it is I suppose is cultivating that kind of ocean awareness or I like to think of it as the ability to read the ocean and understand it and then 
build a relationship with it, like get to know it for you personally and based on what has meaning and value for you and and then beginning to understand how the ocean maybe shapes and influences some of that in kind of really quite interesting, unexpected ways wherever we are on the earth. Um, we don't have to be right by the coast. And so that's it, the narrative is expanding now to include, I guess, all water because it's all connected, right? Which again is, I think, a really powerful way to bring it back to people of like asking people and this is something I've learned from Wallace J Nichols who wrote the brilliant book Blue Mind he's been a great sort of mentor and support in my own writing too a marine biologist but he just talks about you know asking like well where's where's your water <laughs> and wherever you are on this this planet I think it's possible to find water nearby otherwise we won't survive and then just getting to know it like how how is your water doing and so that's one way to sort of connect actually with the ocean wherever you are rather than trying to take in the yeah the, the vastness of it all because it can seem so overwhelming and then you kind of think well what what difference could I possibly make in the challenges that we face? The reverence of which you write about the ocean and clearly hearing it in your voice when you're describing how what it does for you and your connection to it. You're a marine biologist knowing what you know about how much trouble the ocean is in. Do you carry a grief in you when you dive into the water? Yeah, it's... I mean, it's like a constant source of like hope and inspiration, but it's also, there's always this sort of bittersweet edge now, knowing the impermanence of so many things I might be witnessing or experiencing, and also grief for things already lost. And that kind of becomes more pronounced, I think, as the next generation comes along. My, uh, my little niece, Aurora, who's like two, just two now, and and then remembering what you know my childhood was like growing up and beach combing and there being no marine litter or ocean plastic and now it being like it's it's just totally normal it'd be almost strange not to find <laughs> these colorful bits of plastic on the tideline so think things like that that are really shifting and then i also think i get I just love the perspective of uh, another mutual friend of ours, uh, Dr. Ayana Johnson, and marine biologist, how she does this amazing job of reframing the ocean as the hero rather than the victim. So celebrating just how much the ocean does for us and looking at these sort of ocean solutions to the problems that we face, like so much of the answer that we need when we're facing the things like the climate crisis already lie in, in the ocean. But for her, I, I also love in her story, and it's very similar I suppose in, in some ways to mine, it's the importance of having that early childhood, like powerful emotional connection through something that gives you joy, like experiencing the wonder of the ocean through swimming or surfing or snorkeling. And so how important access to those experiences are for, for really diverse groups of people, like early on in life. And I think that then becomes a game changer because then we grow up and we become marine scientists and we shape policy. And, <laughs> and we, we need definitely need more diversity with the higher ups. <laughs> Reading... You know, I, I mean, I know a lot of the stuff that you you write about as far as how much trouble we're in. It would be easy for us to sit here for the next hour and discuss how much yeah. trouble we're in because there's no end to to that. Though that doesn't really get us anywhere except, you know, we can become stagnant or hopeless and it is very easily lead to taking no action. Where is the hope that you see in in the ocean going forward? 
Yeah. Well, our, our survival depends on it. So in a way that gives me hope, um, is I think we're all pretty keen on surviving, but yeah, it is remarkable. The, the scale of the impact. I mean, I won't go into it too much, but I still can't quite wrap my head around how we've altered the, you know, the biochemistry of something as vast as the ocean. So it's, you know, becoming more acidic. We've, you know, raised the temperature. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it takes a while maybe to heat up the water for the bathtub, but can you imagine for the entire ocean? There's so little we understand about it. And yet I'm just even thinking how remarkable it is that sharks, for example, are like four evolved 400 million years ago. (laughs) And then they've, they stopped evolving, you know, tens of millions of years ago. So they, they, they really got it figured out. And then, you know, Mount Everest first appeared 20 million years ago. And so they, just the species in the ocean, the, the the kind of the intelligence locked into that in terms of the evolution and survival. Like think about like what what sharks have survived and lived through in the history of our planet. So there's so much to learn from that. Is kind of what I'm what I'm getting at. And so it's I suppose for me the message there is is a big part of it shows up our kind of immaturity as a species as humans and that sort of ignorance and arrogance and really needing to like shed that now and spend a lot more time like listening (laughs) and like learning from what's actually happening around us i was thinking about it as i was exactly as you mentioned as i was filling up wolfie's bath tonight i was you know think thinking about how all of all of nature exists in in balance with itself and when it comes out of balance it you know it corrects and nature every living being has a kind of self-correcting mechanism built into its Mm. life cycle and all the symbiotic relationships have a self-correcting mechanism nothing ever really got too out of hand and you know it was always in equilibrium and even though we can't see it you know we're kind of pulling this slingshot back you know <laughs> and the ocean i kind of get the feeling the oceans were like it's cool we'll come back to zero it's fine <laughs> and we're just kind of pretending it's not going to happen but slowly slowly more and more and over the next 30 50 100 years it's it's going to happen you know the ocean's going to play such a role as as we go forward how might we be at peace with how much change is going to happen, Eski. And, you know, what's the way that you look at that? Yeah, because we kind of, I mean, even, in, you know, in our lifespan in a, in a planetary sense is, is so brief. And yet we live with these notions that things are very fixed and determined, or at least we did. <laughs> and now we're learning, okay, we have to going to have to be mm-hmm. much more fluid and adaptable, which in a way, maybe th- that will give us some of the strength and skills and resilience we need. But I'm even thinking of our, you know, our coastlines and our, our cities and the infrastructure that we create. And we kind of assume that because we, we made it and built it as humans, that it's, it has this permanence to it. And then if you actually think about it from the ocean's perspective, how much it's been like shifting and moving, how much higher the sea levels once were, how much lower they were, how, you know, this, you know, the earth has always been, it's been really dynamic for a very long time. And yet we, we've kind of forgotten that. Uh, but I think what's more important for me is around place connection. I think why it's so important, and I can see it with people who are drawn to the to the water now or maybe taking up sea swimming for the first time or it's like they're kind of rediscovering uh, and appreciating the power of accessing the rest of, of nature in their own backyard but 
it's such a big scale. I guess what I'm trying to get at is is looking at what relationship you have with it in your everyday life and building from there. So getting you know where you are, getting to know and understand it and just paying attention and noticing like the just simple things, even if you're in a city of like uh, observing, you know, it's it's amazing the resilience of plants that even grow in cracks and pavements or yeah, it's I, I think there those kinds of things actually really, really matter. How you connect locally with place and your like nearby nature and what you can do for it. When you mentioned earlier, you know, it's a, you, know, you grow up and you become a marine biologist and you're able to shape policy. We are a couple of short months away from an election here in Australia, whom I don't know if you know, did not do a very good job at COP26. In fact, did a pr- pretty ordinary job, then came home and made it even worse. When it comes to looking for policy, when it comes to looking for people in an election, what kind of things would you hope people would look for when it comes to um, the oceans? Yeah, it's uh, when I said shaping policy, I kind of meant more Ayala. <laughs> and I would see myself more as a, I guess, social ecologist. So I'm, I really look at the now the relationship between people and the living world, the relationship between humans and the sea, and looking at where that link or connection is broken, and then how we might restore it. So in response to your question, I would say it actually, just, I would start there of looking at those relationships and a lot of the problems I think stem from where they're broken or where there's conflict and a lot of the healing both for ourselves and the planet comes from from there and maybe it even starts with the relationship with ourselves and within our families but I really believe that a lot of what's happening is in the environment around us is mirroring our society as a whole and you know the health of the ocean is completely linked to uh, to our health and well-being they're really interdependent. So that idea that we, we can't be well in the sick sea. And I, I kind of feel there's a, there's a huge opportunity here because you could tackle these two huge problems that are completely interrelated, which is our own health individually and as a society, and in particular around our mental health and then the health of the planet. <laughs> Through looking at how do you, either working together in, in communities and groups to, to heal a particular environment or water body, but also recognizing how that's going to benefit us, or then working with our with our own health and well-being, like building and restoring those relationships, so that we can better collaborate together to take action on issues we care about. And I can see great examples of in Australia too of that kind of community-led action. I see it within the surf community, and so it's really important as individuals to actually work together, like the we part, which is something that Ayana would also really emphasize in her work as well. And individual actions are really important, but they kind of distract us. I feel like it could be distraction tactics to focus on, well, you know, I'm doing my bit in my corner here. And really it is a drop in the ocean, but what changes it from being a drop in the ocean is when you kind of join up. And so you you find others like through surfing who care about a, a cause and there's yeah there's a lot of power in in that kind of coming together for what you care about but in order to do that you need to have that sense of community connection belonging so cultivating those things are really important it's like just opening up and helping each other out more has a spillover effect if you know what i'm saying who'd have thought that you know the thing that allowed us to survive and thrive initially this idea of cooperation and moving together in small groups uh, would be something that we need <laughs> yes, again, yes. you know, in these times of mega cities with millions and millions and millions of people in them where the only water in your life comes through a metal pipe into your house, you know, yeah. that 
coming together in these small groups is the thing that can really help and, and shift and move. Yeah, and then how, and how do you bring together diverse groups? There's certain people who can hold space for that. And then it's needing to develop skills to be able to listen to each other, like these diverse perspectives and to maybe tell stories in, in new or different ways. So it's definitely having, you know, bringing in, I think, this mix of other voices into these spaces that have really been kind of held mm. by, by the dominant few. And that, that's another, that'll be another game changer. Tell me about the importance of storytelling when it comes to facing this this crisis that that we're in. Because we were talking a bit about a bit about before about the idea. Of, like if you if, if if I said to you, okay, can you describe to me the problem that climate change is? Like it's so massive, you can't actually think about it. It's wild, like, and I know a lot about it, but I can't actually hold it in my head all at once. How is storytelling really important in that scenario? I think it's hugely important. And I kind of, if it's something that sort of I discovered or uncovered more when I was writing the book was this, this power of, of language. And in Ireland too, we're quite close to, you know, the power of like storytelling is huge. It's a huge part of our like cultural identity. And we had Shanakis, which were, were the storytellers who shared oral traditions and passed on stories orally by visiting, going from house to house, and and everyone would sit around the fire. And but that was how both you know news and information would get passed around, but also how a lot of the time through maybe like mythology or, or fables and folklore, there are actually stories that are very much about that ecological connection to place. So how humans interacted with the rest of the world around us. And even in Ireland, in Gaelic, so many place names still speak to what that habitat once was, or, you know, that we have Derry, which is Dura, which is comes from the Irish for oak wood. So it would have been covered in oak trees, uh, ancient oak woodland that are, are now gone. Or even where, where I live too, the different names would relate to it being more tidal than it is now or these salt marshes and wetlands that have been since drained and and then even sayings that are connect us to other species one of my favorite is um kosov leavon grania so to be as gentle as a basking shark <laughs> which is this wonderful image that obviously through human observation we we saw these we were out you know our ancestors were out fishing these you know basking sharks were chilling out on the surface and they were like, wow, okay, that's that'd be really nice. I'd love to be doing that right now. <laughs> they seem super chilled. <laughs> as gentle as a barking shark. Oh, I love it. I, I've got to say, like watching your work over the last couple of years evolve, it's been so nice to see you really embrace the visual art again mm. or, or even more in your life and and the the book is full of just most the most wonderful illustrations audrey and i were both you know marveling in them what has that brought to you it's well probably it's not funny but my because i grew up my dad's a, a surfer and also an artist and so i've you know probably been drawing for longer than i've been surfing and i've been standing on a surfboard since the age of four and then i i've also led you know, quite an academic life and in science and and a lot of these sort of heady arenas that for me then always having that cultivating that practice of, of drawing and my art was like this, this lovely creative release, you know, before those meditative coloring books came out. <laughs> so yeah, I suppose it was a form of, of my own mindfulness practice before I really understood what that was. But then writing the book, I realized surfing and art were 
both of them were a creative process for me and they were they're very interwoven so there were just different ways of kind of making meaning of my my experience so surfing was a way to kind of give expression to maybe what the what the wave or the world was offering and how I was feeling at the time and then the the drawing and the art was a way to kind of get deeper into what those moments of encounter in the ocean in particular it's a big theme obviously in my art yeah it was a way to kind of express that but it was always quite a personal practice for me it's so nice to see it's get so so lovely accents uh, throughout the book you mentioned sharks showed up 400 million years ago stopped evolving 100 million years ago and so there's this embedded knowledge within what it is to be a shark around survival and adaptation we might not be able to speak to sharks uh to get the intel out of them as quickly as possible (laughs) yeah how did you do it yeah How did you survive the extinction? I, I will say, look, we, you know, there's many things about modern life that I'm very, very grateful for, like vaccinations, antibiotics, uh, toothbrushes, <laughs> the Haber-Bosch process. Like there's all kinds of things, modern medicine, there's all kinds of stuff that I'm really grateful for modern life. However, the idea of modern life and that we are, we are rising above nature. We are divorced from it. We no longer pay heed or call to it. We don't need to obey its cycles or its rhythms or its demands. We are beyond it isn't working out for us so well. What can we, and in your work, what have, you, what have you learned from the continuous cultural practices that do extend back in our country 60,000 years, but in other countries maybe a little less, what have you learned from those Indigenous cultural practices around the world that we might be able to take on board as like, oh, this was working before we, you know, created the steam engine and kind of started fucking shit up. What can we learn from these cultural practices around the world, do you think? Yeah, I think what immediately came up, which might seem like an odd answer or like a luxury as well, but it was listening, this ability to like pause and listen and to to actually take that conscious breath and breathe in and feel the breath in the body and then actually listen to the world around us. So I mean listening and it happens take for example going surfing and I get really excited and I just want to get out there or I need to catch the tide or I'm running out of daylight and so I'm all kind of frantic and I jump in and I'm there trying to chase after waves and but the whole session I'm a bit out of sync and disconnected and I can't find my flow versus when I, I rock up and actually just pause take a moment pay attention and and listen to the ocean so to speak so like tune into where it's at and then almost trying to uh, match myself with whatever the ocean is offering rather than trying to like impose this is what I want to do and this is what I want to get out of it so you can go and you can surf but it's very extractive versus actually just like breathing into and listening to what's most alive in me and how and what what the ocean is presenting so it's by creating that the listening allows then for me to sort of match my energy to what the ocean is presenting and and so usually I have a much better surf session but also it creates this kind of reciprocity there's an awareness of an exchange happening that isn't just me coming and taking that there's this this interaction between me and the ocean and when I enter the ocean I'm, I'm having an impact on it too as well as it impacting me. That is the opposite of what I saw when I first learned to surf. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I, I learned to surf on a very crowded break full of like there was locals only written in spray paint on the cliff it was all take yeah it can be (laughs) 
So to have a session like you just described, if I could have a surf session like you just described, I would pack up my board and retire. <laughs> I'd be like, never going to get better than that. <sighs> but I'm guessing it's not always like that. It might be just for a wave or two that it feels like that. Yeah, sure. yeah. There's definitely not. I'm not I'm talking about entering a Zen state of, of oneness all the time. It's very fleeting. <laughs> but it, it, it is something that I have learned from. I'm, I'm actually working on the, on the next book, which is no surprise, also all about water. But it, it involves having you know some amazing conversations with water protectors all around the world from so many different backgrounds, working with water in so many different ways. But that comes up again and again, is this this listening and then this entering into like a conversation with, with the water, realizing that we're all in relationship and that there's an exchange happening. And it very much centers around how do we create this culture of reciprocity, which is, I suppose, really what I'm talking about, that kind of culture of, yeah, care or reciprocity, I think is the best word. Yeah, I, I don't know if the people that designed and built the mega trawlers that basically scraped the ocean <sighs> clean have heard that concept no. and pull up hundreds of tons at a time of everything, <laughs> throwing most of it dead back. I don't know if they've heard that that concept. How do? What do we even do about that? Yes, I can have a moment by the beach mm-hmm. and have that moment, and yet, you know, where, where I live, you know, However many hundred kilometers offshore, there's this mega trawler with nets as long as my suburb, you know, <laughs> just sucking the ocean dry. That can't be good. No, it can't. And I mean, that's why I think it's really important to have both, you know, there's a has to be that continue to put as citizens the pressure on on the powers that be at the top and and you to leverage as much of democracy as we can <laughs> to do that. Mm. And then but also to not just leave all the responsibility there because we can see where that gets us as well, but where the local really matters too. And, and, and I'm seeing a shift like that happening a lot more here, even around in terms of our foods, what we're talking about there is the scale of the kind of food production being so industrial and actually going back then and finding ways to either set up local cooperatives or support the farmer's markets or yeah, to really embrace that local aspect where possible as much as possible and then also needing this this real top-down enforcement of but just like no more of that carry on please <laughs> no more of that carry on please that'll be the bill i bring to parliament <laughs> easty britain has asked me no more of that carry on please and sign just a quick moment away from dr easty britain to uh let you know that i really appreciate you for listening this show does not happen unless people listen to it that's just a fact so thank you and you can always get in touch with me if you want send us your email at gmail.com you can also find me on instagram if the show does bring you value please consider sharing the show with someone that you care about maybe there's something in this conversation that you'd love someone you love to hear send them a little something or just hit share in the corner of the podcast app you're listening to this on and and text it to somebody and follow, uh, subscribe to the show wherever you can. That really, really helps us. That's You can't imagine how much that helps us. It's a huge thing to do. It doesn't cost you anything and it really, really helps us here at the show. I'll tell you more about how you can connect with Dr. Eski Britton's book at the end of the conversation, but uh, let's get right back to our chat with Eski. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's something about uh, the flow state that we as humans can achieve, and we can all do it. And people not, may not realise that we can all do it and people may not realise they've already been mm. in it sometime in their life. Very lucky people, I, I'm guessing you're one of them, very lucky people can create it and deliberately enter into it. And I know that being in the flow state can be also incredibly healing. It does something to your brain and, and does something to the way your physiology works. How do you find a sense of flow and what happens to you when you're in it? Yeah, it, and it's it's almost like the quest for flow. Like the harder you try to find it or enter it, then the the less likely you will be to do that. It's interesting, and I think maybe is it being in water does it lend itself more to flow state because you're that, that fluidity sense of being like water. I'm not sure. And in surfing is also an interesting one because I'll take a step back first and look at that psychological state. And I mentioned about this in the book as well, and maybe touched upon it here, where you're in these moments where it's really challenging and confronting and a wave's about to crash down on you. And so you're in that kind of, let's say, red mind state, which is your kind of that stress response, the fight or flight. But it also gives you that great hit of adrenaline, uh, gives you that surge in energy to like get yourself out of a bad situation. So it's actually really important to have a certain amount of that in, in those moments. You just don't want to be in that state all the time. And that's kind of what's happening. We're in this sort of chronic red mind state in most of our everyday lives increasingly. And so actually part of the training for me when I was doing big wave surfing was to how to activate your blue mind, which is what Wallace J. Nichols has written about. And essentially that's just, you know, that sort of sense of like calm or relaxation and, and peacefulness we find maybe when we're around water or the ocean. But it's how do you turn that on? in a situation where you know, the red mind wants to kick in. And so that, that's been really incredible to play around with. And so you can actually train to like switch those mental states. So an example would be if I'm in a situation that I know I have to surrender to, there's no, no escape or I can't get away from, you know, 15, 20 footers by to land on my head at Mullockmore. And <laughs> you have enough, enough time to process that like, okay, oh shit. And then you just have to let go because there's no escaping it. And then through the training, you know, on land in a nice, calm, uh, controlled environment and through the practice of breathing and visualization and breath holding, I've been able to train my body to enter that blue mind state. And then I kind of follow these set of cues, which for me is usually a certain type of visualization that I start in my mind. And then I I kind of go there as my body's being... (laughs) 
rattled around in this place I definitely don't want to be in. But it helps me actually stay calm in those extreme moments of fear or panic. And so that's critical in that situation because you need the body to relax. If you tense up, you're going to get so much more worked and exhausted. That's the extreme example. (laughs) I've never been, I've never taken a 20 footer wave on the head, but I've been under, I've been held down to the point where I've gone, okay, all right, I'm, I like to breathe now. Like, and that's been yeah. terrifying. The idea that you could be in that space and go, oh, just do the thing I remember, know how to do. And then, okay, now I'm just here getting thrown <laughs> around and I'll pop up eventually. That you could train your brain to do that is amazing. Yeah, well, you're buying yourself a little bit of time. I mean, it actually really is in, in surfing kind of seconds that feel like minutes or hours. But And then you do, I, I have to admit, they definitely, you know, there's been moments that I do reach that breaking point of like, okay, now that's enough of that. <laughs> and yeah, you're kind of scraping for the surface. So it's a balance. But for me, the reason I bring that up is that I've actually found that now hugely beneficial, like to draw upon those resources in, in the last 18 months in particular. Obviously not being caught under 20 footers all the time, but just in metaphorically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> the, the shit that gets thrown at us on the daily and unexpectedly. Um, so it's a really important thing to continue to cultivate. And you don't have to surf 20 foot waves to do that. But that that's a bit of a divergence from flow, kind of. I, but I would be happy to figure out how to be able to b- call a blue mind to order when I need it. I'd love to learn how to do that. So I'm going to have to look up your mate. I'm going to have to figure that out, figure out that training. That sounds like a skill I'd like to have in my toolbox. Yeah, we all need to get our blue mind on a lot more. <laughs> We're in this wild, low-pressure system here in Australia, and it's it's wildly still winter, wow. which is not, not great. There will be, I'm sure, plenty of people, and I count myself as, as one of them, going, oh, fuck, it's beach, that means shirt off, that means other people looking at me, fuck, you know, <laughs> I don't want that. I want to get in the ocean, but I, oh, shit, everyone's got a fucking camera on their phone, fuck, you know. <laughs> what, what would you say to people who are going, yeah, that's all well and good, Eski, but I don't feel good about myself when I go to the ocean. I don't feel good mm. about my body when I go to the ocean. What would you say to that? Yeah, I got it so challenging. And I'm going to forget too, because I mean, it's easy here in Ireland to find. Well, it, I mean, it's it's changing though. So many people are, are going to the beaches year round here as well. But, you know, it's it's not quite the same as the Australian beach culture. And you can still usually find your own little quiet cove to just slip into and have your moment um, with yourself or, or you and a buddy. But yeah, when you're in that, when there's a very different kind of scene, and I imagine it must be kind of a, yeah, uh, I can't even imagine. And I do know from having surfed there, you know, years ago when I was on the Gold Coast and doing like the Pro Junior Series, and it was overwhelming for me of, of you know, showing him this sort of, you know, white scrawny kid from Ireland and definitely not in any of the latest surf gear and just feeling really like left eye and going, how am I going to fit into this lineup? which of course I didn't because it's just crazy and packed. And so I learned all about pecking orders and things like that the hard way. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. I, what I would say, I kind of find I'm really intrigued by what's happening with the sea swimming in particular and this, this kind of open water swimming. And I don't know how it is in Australia, but I find like here, this definitely feels like there's much less judgment about 
who you are, what you do, how you look. And then once you get in the water, it is such a great leveler and you're all kind of immersed in the sea together, kind of bobbing like seals. And I found it being for people who have that kind of fear or don't feel comfortable, it'd be really kind of empowering to be part of either you you get together your own friends and you drag them along or or join a group there's all these informal swimming groups that are popping up all all over here in Ireland and the UK but it just creates this really safe enabling space it's really important to have that especially when you know water can really trigger a lot of emotions and fears so i think having that really matters and i'm seeing two things like different ocean therapy and even surf therapy organizations do an incredible job of creating this sort of safe enabling environment that's really supportive you can just come as you are and I think that's a wonderful experience for so many of us regardless of, of what we're we're coming with or not and so I, like I know in Australia the work with guys like Waves of Wellness do is remarkable in that regard and I can see that then spinning off into other ways of creating just a more supportive environment at the beach and in the sea so I definitely think we need to do a better job of that if people are feeling like they don't belong or excluded or uncomfortable, it's a real bummer. Yeah, you're you're right. I, I don't know if it's just because I'm now reaching the age where people I know and a little bit younger than me are all getting really into ocean swimming, but I, I may remember when I was like maybe 20 years younger, there was all these older people always swimming out, way out. I was like, what are you guys doing out there? It's like, no, shit, that's now my friends. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Well, maybe it's also different in Australia with swimming way out of sea. I kind of, when I say swimming here, I mean dipping, probably because the water's so cold. We kind of just, you know, bob around and it's not even oh, any long, not long like, distance. Oh, no, no, no. Like from Bondi to Bronte, they swim from South Bo- North Bondi to Bronte, which is probably about a two and a half Ks. Oh, here. Okay, no, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> oh right, 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 right. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it is. It is obviously sea swimming, but I, I feel there's actually a a rise in. I suppose these like sea dippers. I think primarily the main motivator is for that social connection, especially the uh-huh. last couple of years of finding a way right. to, to get together safely out, outdoors and then in the water just kind of creates this sort of sense of openness and that bond of the sea. But me, mostly, we kind of just like paddle around a wee bit and maybe spend you know, 10, 15 minutes and they get back out. <laughs> oh, right. But that in itself is, is excellent. You don't even have to almost swim. You just go and float out no. there and tread water. And Honestly, <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, you jump in water that's, let's say, 10 degrees lower than your body temperature, you'll know about it. You'll know about it, you know, maybe 20, maybe 15 degrees lower than body temperature. Anything, anything under 20 degrees, you'll know pretty quick. You'll be like, what? <laughs> but that's good. You know, we, we can talk about cold therapy all we want, but Wim Hof wasn't available tonight. Iski, I'm, you know, I know it's early. I know you want to go get in the ocean. So I can't thank you enough for, for speaking to me again. And I can't thank you enough for giving us the gift of this book. It is so beautiful, so beautifully written. You are an astonishing person. And I'm just so grateful that I, I got a chance to get to know you all those years ago and that we're still in touch because it's just great. Iski, you've written something amazing here. And bloody good on you. It's freaking good. Well done. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> that was Dr. Eski Bruton. And um, I'm pretty sure you'll um, yeah, be thinking twice about some of the cycles in your life and noticing some of the cycles in your life this week, this month, this year. They are there and they're everywhere. And once you notice them, it's hard to not notice them. And it's kind of comforting. I've been, since that conversation, I've been 
writing it all down and it's it's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. The book is called Salt Water in the Blood. It's a fascinating read and she is just great. She's also written a book called 50 Things to Do by the Sea and do check out Our Lunar Cycle by Eastkey Britain. It's a film that she made, one of the many films she's made. She's fantastic. Do reach out and connect with her wherever you can because she's really good. And go check out her TED Talk if you haven't seen her TED Talk from uh, 2013. Uh, and she's also got an episode on this show from a couple of years back too, I think. So yeah, she's an amazing woman. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Massive thanks to Andy Ma, my audio producer, who's cutting us up on the road at the moment. Big thanks to Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, who makes everything in my life happen. Bree Steele on research support, Toe Hyder on the music, and you for listening. Thanks heaps for listening. We're back here on Wednesday. I hope you look after yourself between now and then, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things.